extremely long parak, so we're just going to have to talk very fast. Okay, so first off here, you see it's got 58 psukim. That must be some kind of record in Shmuel. And, um, you know, I always use this particular edition to show you breakdowns, but to me it seems like there's too many here, so I'll just give you the way I see it. Um, Parakid Zion starts off with the, you know, the challenge of Goliath, right? And then we move off to David and the reason David comes to the battlefield on this day. And then we have um, David uh, getting ready to take up the challenge of Goliath. And, of course, the discussion he has with Shaul of whether or not he is the person that should go forward. And, of course, the, uh, the battle and a very strange aftermath. So there's a number of things that are very weird here, so I'll just put them out there. I don't have great answers for anything, so I'm just uh, putting it out there. The, the really strange thing is that Perak Yitzayan follows Perak Tetzayan. There's a number of ways that we're going to try to explain the problem, but it's it's a difficult one. In other words, in Perak Tetzayin, as we did last week, chapter 16, we find that Shmuel goes to anoint David. So number one, it says there, he anoints him, I'll show you here. Tetzayin, uh, here. Right? He anoints him So that sounds like his brothers know what's going on. Right? Then we have the whole end of Perak Tetzayin, where Shaul is, you know, the Ruch Hashem passes from Shaul, it leaves him. The kingly spirit of God leaves him and goes to David. And at that point, Shoal becomes, you know, it's hard to explain it other than some sort of um, depression. He, he, he's very, very frightened. He's very paranoid. And all these things are soothed by music. And that's how David ends up coming to play music for him. Chapter 17, it's as if the events of chapter 16 haven't happened in a certain sense. Because Shoal doesn't seem to know who David is. And David's brothers treat him, you know, pretty, uh, you know, big brotherly, not in a good way. And so we have these questions, so we try to answer them, but let's go forward. So first of all, no, let's go to the beginning. It's a long back. <laughs> 58 psukim. Okay. So all of a sudden there's a war. The Plishtim gather their camp to war and they gather at Soho, which is in Yehuda, and they camp between Soho and Azekah Be'epistamim. So I have a map. Okay, this is the heartland. You could see it here. This is Emeka'ela, beautiful valley near Beit Shemesh, for those of you who live out there. Okay? And they camp at Soho. The Plishtim's regular uh, place is the five principal cities, Ashtar, Ashkelon, and Aza on the coast, and Ekron and Gat further inland. And now they take themselves all the way to Soho, which is Yehuda territory, and they keep moving further in. The Malbim says, why did they attack now? And the Malbim, one of the beautiful things about the Malbim is that he finds all the connections. He says, well, look, if you have a king who is extremely frightened and hesitant, and all of a sudden that emboldens the enemy. And that's, uh, you know, first thing that we should think about, you know, uh, it's not much that we can do about it, but once you have a situation 
where the nation is frightened and divided and the leadership is unsure of itself, that's when enemies attack. I don't think that um, we have to go further into that scenario because we see this all around us all the time. Going back to, oh, just let me just show you a picture here. Emma Kaela today, how beautiful is that? You have two mountains, the valleys in between. So the Plishtim are coming up from the Southwest and they're encroaching on the Jewish territory and the Jews are on the other mountain and in between them is a valley. And Shaul and his company, the, the men of Israel, his army, they gather and they camp in Emek Elah, they just showed you, and they prepare a battle towards the Plishtim. Now, the way that they would set these things up is they would have their troops in, you know, in, in various formations facing the enemy, Gimel. As I showed you in this beautiful picture, just imagine the Plishtim on one side, the Jews on the other side, and in between is a valley. And a man comes, the Isha Benayim, between the two camps. He comes out of the camp of the Plishtim, Goliath Shmo, Migat. His name was Goliath, and he came from Gat. Sort of a, has a rhythm about it. Goliath from God. Govho, Sheish Amot Bazeret. His height was six cubits and a zeret. Now, a zeret is a hand's breadth. A Sheish Amot is uh, a cubit is like um, a foot and a half. So we're talking about a person who is somewhere between nine and 10 feet. So the hand's breadth, if you could see, it goes from like one end of the thumb to the end of the, that's a zeret. However, the Zeret is variable because it depends on whose hand it is, right? So Goliath's hand was probably pretty large. We're talking about someone who's between nine and 10 feet tall. So this is kind of scary. Just as a comparison, okay, he wasn't so tall. This is what it says in Devarim, right? Kirak og melech the The refa'im were giants from who were in the earth, if you remember that book. Hine aso eris barzel, halo he b'rabat b'nei amon, teisha amot arka ba'arba amot rochba ba'amat ish. If you remember the giant Og, he was the palit. He was the, the one lone remaining giant from the from the times, even before the flood, right? Because I'll say he, he survived the flood by hanging on to the teva. In any event, his bed, is now in Rabat Ne'amon. It is preserved at that time, the time of Sefer Devarim. And it was nine cubits in length and four cubits in width. So the width was like six feet and the length was like 13 and a half feet. So really, Og had, had Goliath beat. But, uh, you know, on the other hand, when you're looking at a man who's almost 10 feet tall, it's quite not a, not a fun experience if he's on the other side of your army. And who is this man? So he's a descendant of Orpah. So we have to examine that for a second. In Shmuel Bet, at the end of Shmuel Bet, we have this um, description of some of the enemies of David. And, right, one of them is called Yishbi Benov. He is one of the children of Harafa, right? And he also a description of tremendous armor. And Avishai say, helps David uh, survive the attack by Yishbi Benov. And then you have other people, uh, Sibchai, Hakushati, Saf, a collection of people, four people who are children of Harafa, right? And here in Yotet is a strange thing. The... Uh, the war at Gov against the Plishtim, a man named Elchanan, Elchanan ben Ya'are ha'ogim beit halachmi or beit lechem kills Goliath Agiti beit chani tokim no'ogim which we're going to see that right now. So Rashi right away says, this Elchanan is actually David. We don't know, you know, if that was his name. And we have here other people from God 
other people who are descendants of Harafa, right? And it says a Mishmadone, a tremendous man, and he had six fingers on his toes and his hands, just in case you didn't get that right. They were all together 24 digits, and he is also a child of Harafa. And he um, disgraced Israel and Yehonatan ben Shema, that's a David's brother, and uh, therefore this was Yehonatan is David's nephew. He killed him, and the four Elu were children of Harafa. So Harafa and Chazal connect with Orpah. So let's take a look at for a minute at Ruth, the story of Ruth. Okay, you have the two sisters-in-law, the two daughters-in-law of Nomi, and Nomi keeps trying to push them away. And she says, go back to your mother's house. Um, God should give you menucha. You should all remarry. And they cry. And they said, no, we want to go back with you. And Nomi says, go back, my daughters. Don't go with me. I, I have nothing to give you. I can't possibly give you a husband, right? Because I'm too old. And even if I had a child, would you wait for this, right? And so at that point, Pasigudalit, but tisena kolamba tifkena od. They cry again when Naomi says that, but Tishak Orpa kisses Naomi and says goodbye, and Ruth clings to her, the very famous story. And here we see, okay, according to Chazal, um, Orpa is the mother of Goliath, and David, of course, we see very clearly in the text is a great-grandson of Ruth. So you see how the, the, the two sisters-in-law who up until this Pusik are in the same place and how their fortunes diverge so that a generation later, you have on one side the, the miraculous great, uh, you know, of a David, and on the other side, this terrible um, Goliath. And it's a very, very sad thing. I just mentioned one thing Rabbi Lipowitz in Nachat Yosef has an amazing discussion of Ruth and Arpa here. And he says sometimes, they, this is a, something for us to think about, sometimes a, a decision that we make can be so fateful that the, you know, the, the, you know the, road, the road not taken, it can go like, that has made all the difference, something incredible. And he, he has a very beautiful analysis of Ruth and Arpa. I'll take a second just to digress. And he says, Arpa was being logical and listening to what Nomi said. It doesn't make sense for you girls to come back with me. I have nothing to do for you. I can't help you. I can't help you remarry. And Ruth was listening to the emotion that was underlying what Nomi said. I have nothing to give you, but don't leave me. Please don't leave me. A very beautiful thing that Rabbi Lipovit says in Nachat Yosef. And Ruth heard Nomi's unspoken sadness. And she said, I'm not leaving you. And Arpa listened to the logic and not to the emotion. Sometimes these uh, decisions are very, very faithful. Anyway, so we have Goliath. And he has, I think you have to understand this, in terms of this story, Goliath has a certain power. The Medrash talks about it. He has a certain power that's not entirely physical because Orpa had merit. Orpa followed Nomi 40 steps. So Goliath was able to, um, Goliath was able to overcome the Jews for 40 days. It's not a, entirely a physical power. Something to think about. Okay, so uh, remember that your decisions can be very faithful. Take them carefully. And when you listen to people, sometimes they're not telling you their deepest feelings. You have to hear the feelings and not just the stated, um, the, the language that they come out with may not be their, their truest feelings. So something to be uh, open to. Okay, so Goliath, the giant, comes out, and he's not just gigantic, he is armed to the teeth. This man is wearing 
you know, I, I'm telling you today, you can do Google anything. So I just Googled the armor of Goliath. Look what I found. Okay. I love it. I was once many years ago teaching this in Adresha Rachel, and I had a student who was an expert on medieval armor. Oh, we had a lot of fun with her. Where are you, Linda? Okay, anyway. The Kohen Choshet, the bronze helmet, right here. The Choshet is usually translated as copper. So it's not really so clear, but he has a helmet, right? And he has a coat of mail. So the way the coat of mail is that you see their scales, the scales are sewn onto a piece of leather. That allows them to be protected, but also to give flexibility of movement. He also has a, a cherev. He has a cherev. Here is his chanit. We don't see the end of it. And this is what we call in the next pasuk. I'll we'll go back to the pasuk. This is called mitzchat nechoshet, right? He has a um, shin guards. This is this is what um, Linda told me. Greaves, they're called. I never heard of that before. Certain things to protect his legs. So um, this is the picture I came up with. The picture's worth a thousand words. Okay, so the the weight, the weight of his coat of mail was 5,000 copper shekels. Now, if we make the calculation, the archaeologists have found shekels, right? And the shekels were usually 12 grams. That was the weight of the shekel. Now, if you take 5,000 and multiply it by 12, you get 60,000 grams, which is 60 kilo. This man was walking around with a coat of mail that was the weight of a standard small woman. Imagine the weight on this man. And he has these greaves on his legs. It's not enough that there's a sword and a spear attached behind his neck is a javelin, just in case he loses his other weapons. There it goes. He pulls it out. The chetz, otherwise the uh, written, the eitz chanito kimnor ogim. Like a weaver's beam. The, the, this is the wooden part. So the spears of those days were made with a wooden handle, right? The shaft. And it was as big as a weaver's beam. So that's about, according to what I've been checking up, that should be about two inches in diameter. But lahevet chanito sheishmach go another weight. But this is a weight of iron, 600 shekels of barzel. Okay, so that is the, the tip, the metal tip of his spear. You were talking like crazy amounts of weight, seven or eight kilos, like 16 pounds, just the tip of his spear. Not even talking about the ship, which is like usual piece of, I mean, the man is walking around with the coat of mail weighing the size of a human being and a spear that's like, you know, something in the range of, uh, I don't know, 10 kilo. So this is crazy. And he has, besides that, no he has a, a person walking in front of him with a special shield. He's like a fortress, this man. And when the Jews see him, they can be forgiven for being quite scared. He stands and he calls out. Don't forget, he's on the other side of the mountain. He comes down to the valley. So if you're picturing this, he's in the valley calling up to the Jews. Why should you go out to war? Hello, I know her, Plishti. I'm a Plishti. I'm just a Plishti. You are slaves of Shoal, right? Come, choose a man and let him come down to me. And he has this challenge. Why should we waste all these lives in a battle and a war? Let's do it this way. Let's have a duel. Just me, an ordinary little pole pushy, just nobody special. Right? You just send down your champion. And if I win, you'll be our slaves. And if he wins, we'll be your slaves. Great idea, right? And of course, the Targum comes up with like a whole, I mean, I don't have a Targum in any of my editions here, but the Targum says, plishti. the Targum says, maybe it's in the Rashi, let me find it for you. Yeah, I'm not a, a 
uh, officer of the hundreds. I'm not an officer of the thousand. I'm not a special. I'm just an ordinary plushy, right? I hear 10 of the pool armed like a tank, right? But you're just an ordinary plushy. And by the way, I fought a lot of wars. I'm the one who killed Hafi and Pinchas, remember back in chapter four? I'm the one who took the R captive, remember back in chapter four? I brought that to us, to the Philistines. You were just slaves of the shuttle guy, and he never saved you. And the tiger goes on, I, I fought many battles. I threw dead Jews up like dust, right? And I'm just an ordinary guy. And you have a king who's like nobody. Send me down a man. Now the Chazal, take a look at that Ish, and they say, who exactly is he asking for when he says, send me an Ish? And they have basically two opinions. The first one is, you're slaves to this show guy. Yeah. Send me show. And don't forget, one of the things we know about Shaul is that he is the tallest person in all of Israel. So who more appropriate to fight a giant than a, a very tall person like Shaul? Come on, Shaul, come and get, come, come and uh, see if you can fight me. But the Chazal say it's worse than that because when he says, ish, he's saying, Hashem, nobody can fight me. Hashem is Ish Melchama, we say in Az Yashir. He's challenging God, which is a, you know, that's a big mistake, but that's what he's doing. That's according to Chazal. Send me a man. So he's managing, right? And he says this, out, you know, openly, Give me a man. Let me see you. you can you produce a man? You Jews, you, you cowards. Right? And the what's the word cherafti? Right? I'm going to disgrace you, humiliate you, embarrass you. Now, if you remember back in chapter 11, the king of Amon Nachash said, I'm going to take out your right eyes and make that a cherpa. There's I'm going to embarrass you. I'm going to shame you. And here Goliath doesn't have to go very far because he's standing there and there's no one coming. Everyone is scared. Willis. Give me a man. I need a man. Now it's it's a it's a crazy kind of thing that he's able to stand there, insult everybody, and no one comes forward and no one stops him because it's just too scary to look at him. He, he's like Godzilla. For heaven's sakes, would you take on Godzilla? And Shaul and all the Jews hear the words of this Philistine. And they are broken and terrified. How sad is that? How awful is that? And we have this sort of, you know, sense of the Chil Hashem that's going on here, which is something, you know, out of control Chil Hashem. Because when he can come up and, and you know, attack all the Jews and say, you're all cowards and you're nobodies and you don't have a man, you're no one to protect you. It's really bad. And when you see that the king is afraid, so how is, how's the army going to act? You know, something to think about. Remember back in chapter 13, 14, even though, right, it wasn't such a long time ago that Shaul's son picked up the challenge when Shaul wasn't able to. Where is Yonatan? He's not able to do this either. Hashem is waiting for the new man in town. And David was the son of this Ephrati man, right? From Bethlehem. So now this is where we sort of have to, you know, take it back to chapter 16. I mentioned that there's like a little bit of a strange situation between chapter 16 and 17. And we're sort of reviewing. David is the son of this. Now, Ephrati must mean a nobleman because he's not Ephraim. Or it could be that it's from Ephrat, but we saw that Elkanah was also an Ephrati and he was he was not from Ephrat. So whatever it is, David is the son of Yishai. And Yishai is a man with eight sons. And he, in the times of Shaul, was very old. Baba Anashim, which 
can either means talking about his age, but the Chazal interpret is that he was an extremely important person. According to Chazal, Yisha is one of the people who never sinned, ever. There's four people like that. Um, and I believe Binyamin, Yishai, Amram, and I think David's second son, Kilab. If I'm not mistaken, those are the four men never sinned. But whatever. And this man, Yishai, Hashut, had the eight sons, the oldest three that we met in chapter 16, they are soldiers for Shaul. We met Eliyah, he's the oldest. We met them in chapter 16. These are regular soldiers for Shaul, but David, who are Katan, he's the youngest. And the three oldest go after Shaul, they're in the they're in the war. Now, it's a strange thing. We don't talk about, you know, numbers five, six, and seven. There's like there's another bunch of uh, I'm sorry, four, five, six, seven. There's four sons that we don't talk about. But clearly, the fact that three oldest ones are in the army leaves Yishai, who's quite aged, you know, with a need for help. So probably that's why the other sons are not in the army. So here we see that there is a connection to chapter 16. David goes back and forth from helping Shaul. You know, if he restores Shaul's, you know, uh, mental equilibrium, then he goes back to shepherd the sheep of his father in Bethlehem. And this is the background that we're being provided with. This is this is where David is, and this is what he's up to, and this is what's going on. Now we're coming back to our story. And the Plishti approached morning and evening, and he stood there for 40 days. And our rabbis say, what was the meaning of coming to issue the challenge every morning and every evening? They say so the Jews would not be able to say Kriyachma. Now, <clears throat> a lot of midrashim here, but there's so much text that I think I'm going to do the midrashim as we come along. All right. Um, Yishai says to David, you know, there's been a war going on for 40 days. Uh, they might need some supplies. Bring them this measure of roasted grain, which is a lot, like 25, 30 liters, and bring them 10 breads and run it over to the camp. Don't forget that Gush Etzion is just kind of over the hill from Beit Shemesh. Go that way and bring them the stuff. And these 12, these 10, um, Chavitz is like, you know, um, cut. It's, it, it comes into modern Hebrew as diligent. Someone who's Chavitz, who's like sharp. But the Chazal explained this as cheese. Take these cheeses, 10 cheeses, and bring it to the, the general, the Sar Elef, the Sar of a Thousand. And it's so interesting because when he sends David to Shaul, he sends a gift. And now when he sends food to his sons, he also considers the officer. And check how your brothers are doing. Now this phrase really um, is a, it's a, it's, it's a strange phrase, Arubatam, and there's a number of different things that the Chazal say here. One of them is that, you know, that just, that's uh, check their well-being. Another is that they, uh, they probably pledged money for a, for supplies, and you can redeem that those pledges. But the Chazal say, and this is a very interesting thing, Chazal say that um, Aruba here, right? 
Eruv the thing that connects a man and his wife, and this is what Yeshai came up with in his great sensitivity. He says they're going to be battle, and there might be people who are lost, and then their wives will be agunot, and this will be a terrible thing. So he instituted the conditional get, so that if so, every person went to war would deliver this conditional get. And if he was lost or killed in the war, then his wife would be freed and not become an aguna. And according to Hazal, this is where he says, make sure that you get from your brothers a conditional get for their wives. And this, I believe, I have a lot of Gemara's open for you. Um, Okay, yeah, this is the other one. One that comes later. Sorry, this one must be here. The Philistine Junior morning and evening, right? 40 days. And he was the Isha Benayim. So this is kind of horrible. Just hold on to your hats for a second, right? Um, it says, oh, I was coming up in the text. I'll show you what is in the text, right? Shaul and the, and the Jews are fighting in Emek and they're fighting with the police. And they're really not fighting. They're just getting ready to fight. To fight. By Ashkem David Beboker, Pasikhav, by Yitoshet Hatzon, so David gets up early in the morning and he leaves the sheep with a guard, someone to, to take care of the sheep. And he gets up and he goes as his father commanded him and he comes to the Magala. And the Magala is like a barricade they set up in the round to protect the soldiers who are not going out to the battle so no one can come in or out without them being seen. And the people who are leading the Magalah, they're coming out and they're shouting to frighten the enemy. And they're getting ready for an actual battle. That's not sure if that's going to happen, but they're getting ready. Now, David comes up and he sees us early in the morning. He's burdened with all this stuff that Yishai said. And he puts it down because his brothers are going out to the battle. And David is, you see, he's extremely uh, responsible. He he takes care of the sheep, he gets up early, he's Zariz, he makes sure that everything is the way, way it's supposed to be. And then he sees that his brothers, this is urgent, the, particularly the idea of the conditional get, this is urgent before his brothers go out to war. So he runs to the battlefield and he comes and he finds his brothers and he says, and he asked them how they are, and while he's talking to them, and this is putting David right on the spot here, right? And he sees that this man is coming up, the Isha Benayim, Goliath, the Plishti from Gat. From the Marot Plishtim, Marchot Plishtim, and he says these things that David hears. So just, I, I just give you this one minute to, to, you know, take this kind of horrible Gemara, right? The Marot Plishtim, it says not Marchot. First it says, right, he came morning and evening to prevent them from uh, saying Shema, right? Why was he called Isha Benayim? One is because he came between the camps, and one is because he was like a binyan. He was like a building. That's how strong he was, right? And another one says, what does it mean, right? Um, uh, he was the son of a hundred, like uh, Asuki binyan. Rabbi Yochanan says he was the son of a hundred, right, fathers and a dog, which is kind of creepy, okay? Just, you know, this is a medrash I can't, like, skip. It was called Goliath from God, and it says Marot Plishtim. Marot is a Ma'ara, 
So there's a number of explanations, Myro. It should be Marchot, which means the, the troops of the Pushtim, the battle array. But of course, it's written without that, right? So they say it's from the same root as Arayot. And that Orpa, when she left Naomi, she sank very low and she had relations that night with 100 men and a dog. And that's kind of horrible. And all of terrible, uh, you know, interpretations of her name, that she was, uh, she was actually quite, um, it's not uh, obviously, it's a kind of sick kind of thing. And there's the four sons of Rafa. And it says here, Rabbi Yitzhak says, the, Hashem said the, the sons of the woman who uh, um, kissed Orpah, kissed Naomi goodbye, that is Orpah, will fall in the hands of the son of the one who clung to her. And that is the, uh, right? Okay, I think. Okay, we'll go back. Anyway, David hears the threats and these saber rattling and um, the Jews are just running away. It's something, you know, it's a terrible busha, it's a terrible hilashem. It's something to think about when the Jews are, uh, you know, vanquished by enemies or frightened by their enemies, that is a hilashem. And this is very disturbing to David. And the people say to each other, have you seen this man who comes up? He is disgracing Israel. Shaul the king has set up a reward for anyone bringing about the capture, dead or alive, of this evil person. And one of the three incentives. Number one, he will get a lot of money. Number two, he gets to marry the princess. And number three, the house of his father will be free of Israel. Probably that means exempt from taxes, exempt from, uh, you know, certain things. Now, it is it troubles the Chazal a little bit, this whole thing with the daughter. I think, and, and if you think about that, like offering the daughter, the princess, it's a little bit fairy tale-ish, right? Um, but to understand it, in other words, the thought that this man is creating a Chil Hashem, the one who defeats him will create a Kiddush Hashem, and that's an appropriate person for my daughter. However, um, oh, I just have so many. I think this is the. I just want to make sure I give you the correct Gemaras. Uh, oh, that's the one I wanted before. <laughs> I revoked the, the conditional get now. That's it here. That's quite a good one. The right. Okay, this is the one. Three people ask unreasonable requests. Twice God answered reasonably, and once he answered unreasonably. Who were the three people? Eliezer. Eliezer said, the girl who comes out and gives the water. So the Chazal said, well, what if there's something wrong with her? But God was kind and sent him Rivka. And then Shul said, the man who kills Goliath, he will be my son-in-law. It could have been anybody, but God was good to him and sent him David. And of course, the one who did not get the compassion from God was Yiftach. Yiftach said, whoever comes out will be the Karban, and it was his daughter. So there you go. So it was a sort of thing that perhaps Shaul shouldn't have said, but it is an indication of his desperation. And so I said, what did you say will happen, will be done for the man that strikes that plishti and removes the disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised plishti that dares to disgrace the troops of the living God? This 
Pasek has given rise to a lot of discussion. What is David doing here and what does he say? So first of all, he basically, one shot is he, I didn't hear that. Could you repeat that? Right? And the other is, right, um, you should know that it's the person who saves uh, the, uh, saves us from this disgrace. This is a, this is a, you know, to use the word a rail, an uncircumcised one, it's such a put down to, for a Jew to use that about another person. He's in a rail, he's a nothing, he's uncircumcised. He's missing that covenant with God that we have and he's disgracing us. It'll be enough. The Malbim says, he, it will be enough of a reward to remove that disgrace and the Hashem. It's as if David is shocked that anyone needs more of a reward than saving, saving us from this disgrace. But the question is, what is he really, is he really so astonished? This is such a Chil Hashem. Nobody needs an incentive. We got to get rid of the Chil Hashem, right? But the question is, what's in his mind? So a number of things, either um, either he really doesn't hear, which is one possibility, or he wants to get into this discussion because he really wants to go fight Goliath and he wants to get out there that that's what he wants to do. And Ralbag has an interesting suggestion. Ralbag says, marrying the king's daughter might bring him closer to relationship with the king. And since he's anointed one, maybe, you know, he's the chosen one. So maybe he's the one Maybe that's how he needs to get an end to Shoal's family. So maybe that seems attractive to him. But the other thing is, uh, you know, he is just truly and genuinely horrified that Achil Hashem wants to put an end to it. People say, yeah, this is, this is, this is right, right? They repeat it. And all of a sudden, up comes Big Brother. Big Brother's been watching him. His oldest brother, with Hashem. He hears him by David. And Eliab gets very angry at David. Don't we don't forget that back in chapter 16, God says, I rejected him about Eliab, and Rashi says, because he is an angry person. He has an anger issue. And he says to David very harshly, my young what did you come down for anyway? Who'd you leave the sheep with anyway? You only have a few sheep. Which is not probably true. I mean, that is Don Chaimu, bad, wicked person. So Don is purposeful evil. At Roalavav, you're bad hearted, you're bad boy. Laman you just came down to watch the battle. It's kind of hard to understand the hostility coming from Eliab. Like, what is your problem? So, you know, if you want to give him a kafsa foot, right? So, Perhaps he's actually afraid. He knows his brother. He knows he's going to take this challenge and he's afraid he's going to get killed. So let's put him down. That would be the nice explanation. It's hard to explain. That's, this is the Radak. He's been very charitable to him. But most of the, um, the Farshap say he just doesn't know that Yishai sent him. He doesn't know that David has a good reason for be, be, being there. Right? And... Um, it's kind of hard to understand the hostility. I have my own theories here. I'll just you know share that with you. If you say, okay, he's afraid for him, that's Radak. But I think perhaps there is something, um, this unevenness. You see that when in chapter 16, Yisha doesn't even bring David there. Like David is kind of on the outs. And that's odd because we'll see what comes up what comes up soon. Why is David on the outs? Why? Do his brothers not like him? And the rabbi Amnon Bazak has a whole article comparing him to Yosef in a similar thing. But look what David does. Same thing. It's no big deal. What are you getting angry about? And this is a beautiful example of humility and the way to calm someone down. David answers, what are you getting so upset about? It's like nothing. You know. And um, you know, Yosef learns how to be conciliatory, but it takes, uh, you know, he goes through a lot first. But Eliab, it's a very strange story. David says, oh, calm down. Hello, Dabarhu. One explanation on Dabarhu, wait, this is a big thing. What do you mean? But it sounds like he's saying, no, well, Eliab, when are you getting all bent out of shape? 
Pasuklamid. But David keeps going with his project. He keeps turning to people and saying, What is the king promising? It's like David wants to make a stir. He wants people to hear, Oh, this is a new kid in town. And he's got, you know, he's got guts. Exactly what David had planned. They hear it. They tell Shaul, There's a new kid in town. And he's talking about challenging. Goliath. So he's taken to Shoal. No one has to be upset. I'm going to do it. What are you talking about? Look at you. You're just a kid. He's a, he's a man who's been fighting battles since his youth. This, this kind of is a problematic thing. I'll just tell you as a side note, the Chazal think that David here is 28 because he rules for 40 years and Shaul is only king for two years, according to Seder Olam. It's hard to picture this as 28. It seems more like he's in the range of 17. And that would take us to the chronology of the Barbadale who says Shaul was king for two years until David was anointed. And then there's like this, you know, another 10... 10, 13, 10, I guess, 13 years or something. But anyway, David is trying to convince Shaul that he's appropriate person to go. And he says, you know, I was a shepherd for my father and sheep and a lion came and a bear came and they took a sheep from the flock. I struck those animals and I saved the sheep. The animals attacked me. It's kind of like the beard. I grabbed them by the jaw. I killed a bear. I killed a lion. I killed a lion. I killed a bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine is just another beast. He disgraced the armies of the living God. He's just another animal, and I will kill him. Now, it's very interesting. If you notice, Pasuk Laman Zion, it says, Vayomer David. David has not stopped speaking. In other words, this is a continuous speech. So why does it say again, Vayomer David? It appears that there's a natural pause here. Like David is saying, he's just an animal. He's just like the lion. He's just like the beast, the, just like the bear. And I'm going to kill him the way I killed them. And then there's a pause because David is waiting for Shaul to say, sure, sounds good. And there's no answer. Shaul has not been convinced. And then David speaks up in Lamed Zayim. David, Hashem. God, save me from the lion and the bear. He will save me from the Philistine. And then there's a pause here, because now it's another speaker here. That is what convinces Shaul. Now that's a correct way to speak. I'm not interested that you're so strong and you killed a lion and you killed a bear. That doesn't interest me. I want to hear that faith in God. No, okay. God saved you from the animals. God will save you from him. That's the faith that needs to be uh, uh, for this, needs to be in place for this operation. And it's interesting. It's very interesting. The Medrash says David understood when he killed those animals that God is sending him a message. And the Medrash compares him to Mordechai. When Esther is taken to Ahasuerus and Mordechai is like, this isn't happening for nothing. God is telling me something. Something's going to go on here. And they paid attention. Always pay attention. And Shaul, again, he kind of backslides from the we need faith in God here to let's get you ready. Because if he's armed and he's uh, armored, you also, he puts on his uniform. Madim is uniform, his army, uh, military clothing from Mida, probably. And he gave him a helmet and he put on a coat of mail. And 
Very, very interesting passing. David puts on the sword on the uniform and he he, he wants to go. He doesn't want to go. But Yoel could be either way. And he says, no, I can't go like this. I'm not used to this. I can't take these. I'm not accustomed to it. He takes off this. So the Chazal say that this was uh, a, it's an interesting medrash that David took a boat Either we could take this on the shot level that he just is not accustomed to these, you know, accoutrements of war. But the Medrash says that when he put on Shaul's uniform, by a miracle, it fit him. And Shaul was much taller than him. And Shaul saw, and he was jealous. He was upset. And he felt bad. And David saw Shaul was upset. So he said, I can't go with this. He takes it off. And what does he do? And David takes a staff. Now it's interesting, he has a stick. The stick seems to be a diversion. He's not using the stick. And he takes five smooth stones from the riverbed that washed smooth by the, by the water. And he puts them in his vessel and he approaches the Philistine. And I just want to show you this. I had a picture for you here. Uh, and you have to understand that the, the Kela of David is not that little funny thing that, you know, Dennis the Menace had, something like a, some kind of joke. It's a weapon where you put in a piece of leather, you have two strings there, and you put, like, you imagine the, how do you aim that? I, even, I can't even understand how a person can aim a thing like that. And David is a marksman. He's not just, you know, uh, he's, he's just not, it's not a toy, right? And he's coming now, listen to the verbs, right? David, he comes near, it's a movement, right? Slow motion. Looks at David. Is this joke? He He's young. Rosy cheeks. He's a good looking kid. What are you sending me here? Where's my man? Where's my warrior? You're sending me a kid? He was actually insulted. Am I a dog that you come after me with the sticks? This is where the medrash comes that Arpo had relations with 100 men and a dog, by the way. He's curses him out. How dare you? You're embarrassing me. This is insulting. A kid coming after me with a stick? Come here, he says. Come here. I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and to beasts of the field. He's furious. But David answers him the same kind of, you know, talk. seems to be also a weapon. You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. I come in the name of the living God. That's what I'm coming at you with, with God. And then he makes this challenge. He says, right? On this day, God will give you over in my hand and I will strike you. I'll cut your head off. I will give the corpses of the Pushti army to the birds of the of the sky and the beasts of the field. And the whole land will know that there's a God in Israel. This seems to be directed to the non-Jews. And in Mem Zion, And this seems to be directed at the Jews. And all this congregation will know that God doesn't need weapons to save us because the war belongs to God and he will give you in our, in our hands so many things that it says 
into Hillam. Elam Arechem, Ve'elam Asusa, Ma'anachnu, Shem Hashem Okeinu. We are coming in the, in the name of God. And he wants the Jews to understand that it's not about the amount of your army. It's not about how many people, uh, what kind of weapons you have. It's only if God is on your side. And he wants the whole world to know there's a God in Israel. And again, but the verbs here are showing very slow motion. Probably he's extremely hard for him to move because he's very weighed down. But the Midrash says that God had grasped him by the land. Uh, the, the, the land had grasped him, so he wasn't able to move. And he's coming, approaching David. But David is fast. He's younger and faster. And he's not weighed down. By Yemaher, David, by Yeratz, he hurries and he runs. He runs at him, toward him. And this must have been surprising to Goliath, right? He says, come here, because he can't move so fast. He sends his hand to that vessel, and he takes a stone, and he... <laughs> I don't even know what the verb is for sending some uh, a stone with a slingshot. One of my students said, he slingshot it. I don't know. And he strikes the plishti. He strikes him in the forehead. And the stone went into his forehead and he fell face down to the ground. A summary of this action. David overpowered the Philistine, that tremendous, well-armored giant with a slingshot and a stone, struck him and he killed him. There's no sword in the hand of David. Now David doesn't have a sword and he has said to him, I'm going to cut your head off. And you need a sword for that. So he runs to the Philistine. He takes the sword of Goliath, the tremendous sword, remember that we, we talked about. He pulls it out of its sheath by Yemotatev and he finishes him off by Yichrat Bat Yoshel, cuts off his head. By They saw the Philistines that their champion had died and they ran. Now, by Akumwan Yehuda, so a tremendous route, the Philistines run, the Jews run after them until Ekron, we have that map, uh, right, they run all directions to Ekron and Gat, the Jews are chasing them down and um, they come back, they plunder the stuff, passing them down by Now, he cuts up the head of the Plishti, puts it in Yushalayim, that's an anachronism, Yushalayim didn't really exist then. It seems that the, the, the Farshim say that he took it to Nov, the city of the Kohen, which had been taken over after the fall of Shiloh, and this is the immemorial. The, the end of this parak is very bizarre. I'll just briefly mention it because we really will talk about it more when we get to chapter 18, after But here it seems that Shaul doesn't know what to do with David. He doesn't know, like, he, who are you? So he says to Abner over time, so I'm just being there. Um, he says, who is this kid? It seems either Shaul, because of his uh, troubles and his evil spirit, he forgot, and Abner doesn't want to remind him. He's like, oh, I don't know. Um, or he's saying, is this boy worthy of being my son-in-law? Or he's saying, does he have the lineage to be that person who will be the next king? Up until now, it seems as if Shoal and David were getting along, and now Shoal begins to wonder. Getting back to the end of this story, there's a few things that I just want to mention. Okay, when David kills the Philistine, okay, so the first thing is, how did the stone hit him in the forehead? He's got this helmet on his forehead. So a number of explanations are offered. One is that that was the one un, um, uncovered spot between his eyes, and that was the miracle. 
the other, the Medrash says that it went right through the metal to kill Goliath. And the other is that Goliath looked up and he said, I'll give you to the birds. And that's, but the, then the next question is, if you get a blow to the forehead, don't you fall backwards? Right? So a number of people try to explain that. Um, there's a, a doctor in the got Mikra, spoke to professor and Nadasa who said he lost consciousness and crumpled. He was moving forward. And so when he lost consciousness, he fell forward. But the Medrash really has the last word here. The Medrash says, number one, why should David have to walk an extra 20 feet? Right? If he falls backwards, he has to walk all the way there to get his uh, sword. Like this, he comes right towards David with his dead body. Right? The other is that because he had blasphemed, right? Literally, he was going to bite the dust. He was going to bite the dust. And this, this, this story, we can't even like uh, exaggerate the importance of the story in Jewish history. The, the idea that uh, unarmed young, uh, young man is able to overcome this monstrous, you know, champion of the Philistines with a slingshot and a rock. And I think that throughout history, that's been, you know, the David and Goliath, David and Goliath myth has been like, you know, the, the paradigm of the, you know, the underdog winning over the champion. And you see here that David wants to make sure that everyone knows, right? Jewish people should know I think that we should take that conclusion that, you know, faith and courage, and that's rewarded by Kaddish Baruch Hu. That's what he's looking at. And it's not about the armies. And every time Shaul falls into this trap of thinking that he has to fight a war on natural terms, God says, no, no we need someone who sees that it's all up to God. Okay, I'm sorry, took a little bit extra time, a very long parak. The discussion of Shaul and David and Yonatan in the aftermath of this event will leave for chapter 18. I'm gonna stop the screen share. If anyone has any questions, you could unmute yourselves or any comments. I uh, hope that I was able to, I, there's so much stuff that I couldn't get to. But okay, I tried, tried to get through it all. Thank you. Like, <laughs> fascinating, just fascinating. It's, a, it's like an amazing story. You, you turn it into such sus great suspense with so many great sources backing up everything you say. It's phenomenal. Oh, wow, thank you. I it was great, Ma, really great. Mara's here, you know, like unbelievable the discussion of like who Goliath was and, you know, and Ruth and Arpa, like the, just the image of Ruth and Arpa going their separate ways, oh. having their descendants like face off in the different, different sides. Quite, quite a uh, major, major event. Esther, thank you. Is that Toba? You're, you're muted. Hello, everybody. I want to wish everybody if you have questions or just want to get there because people are going to go up. A wonderful, happy, healthy year. Lots of learning, lots of simcha, and lots of Torah, and good news from each other. Amen. Right. Thank you, Esther, where, where was that? that, that idea of Ruth and Orpa and that split. You, you said Rabbi Leibowitz, like, where could I see find that? It's in the Nahat Yosef. It's a Rabbi Yosef Leibowitz. He has a commentary on Ruth that's just beautiful. It's very, very uh, Musser, very Musser, where he talks about how Orpa listened to the logic of what Nomi was saying and Ruth felt her emotions it's a tremendous piece over there and you could see that like you know sometimes we we talk to people and they're saying something on the surface 
And there's something really underneath, which is really saying, you know, I need this, I need that. And, you know, they don't, they don't even know how to express it or they don't want to say it out loud. And we have to kind of be open to that, you know. Right. I know that's a tremendous reward if, if you can be. Yeah, I like, but it's just, it's just kind of sad to think that Arpa was this close, you know, just that close. And then she just, you know, the selfishness took over the thought that there's nothing in this for me. And, and she went and, and I think that anyone who was, you know, looking at that Megillah can understand that what happened was that these two girls were so taken with Naomi and her behavior. That's why they followed her. Like, this is just extraordinary. They didn't see that. And Moab was a very anti-chesed place. We see that all through the Tanakh. They're anti-chesed people. That's why they're not supposed to be uh, become Jews, right? Because they're anti-chesed people. And they these two girls have that spark in them that comes down from the family of Abraham, right? And they're like, you know what? We like that. We want that. And Arpa can't just can't make the grade. She just can't get there. Now look what happens to her. And look what happens to Ruth. Well, that's that's a beautiful commentary. I think, Zahav, were you learning that with with your father? The Nachat Yosef? Yes, but like I told you, you can't ask me to repeat anything Daddy says because I'm going to mess it up. <laughs> okay. All right, guys. <laughs> you have to tune into my dad's share if you'd like to know more. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but that's uh, I believe the words I use is beautiful. Stunning stuff. All righty. Thank you very much. Okay. Very well. Thank you so much. That was great. Thank you. I'm going to find it on the internet. There's a song yeah. like back in the day when the Israelis made like songs from the Tanakh. It's not very tuneful, but every word is taken from this parak. I remember that song. It was Yeah. Debbie, you remember? I'm gonna look it up and find it, send it to the chat. Is remember it on on uh, on our father's large reel-to-reel tape recorder? Yes, <laughs> yes, from a gazillion years ago. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's very cute. They did remake it, very jazzed jazzed it up. I found that once, and I didn't like it at all. But um, yeah, I'll look for it. If I can find it, I'll send it to you. Okay, well, very good, Rachel. A lot of action as promised. So next week, next Tuesday night is between Yom Kippur and Sukkot, so we're not going to have a class. And the following Tuesday, I believe, is Cholomoed. So that's two weeks we won't have a Shi'ur. And then I think that the, the next time we meet is going to be October 10th. And then we'll talk about the aftermath. You know, it gets like hairy after this. Okay. It's hard for Shaul. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good night. Thank, Thank you. you. Love to see everybody. Okay. Bye -bye.